Welcome. It's, uh, can you believe it's Wednesday already? Just flying by here as usual. And uh, we, last week what we did as we kicked this thing off, uh, this overcoming overload study, um, usually I teach the guys on Wednesday night. And we kind of have a tradition because we always have new guys showing up. And uh, I'm just curious, how many of you are here for the first time? You weren't here last week? Okay, good. Good to have you. Now, anybody here for the second time? Oh, that's good. Usually, they come the first, never the second. So that's really thrilling. You're back for the second time. Uh, we always like to take a few minutes to get to know each other because we got a big church. And, you know, if you sit on that side, you don't know the people over here and all that. And, and let's just not do this in a perfunctory way. Let's, let's uh, say hi to somebody you don't know and ask them where they're from. I mean, where they live. I mean, maybe they live down the street from you. And, and you don't know that. Um, ask them what town they live in, and uh, ask them what service they go to, and uh, ask them if they can give you a loan or, or, or something. Get to know them. I mean, so some folks you don't know. Let's take a few minutes. Let's do not do this quick. Let's take four or five minutes and meet some folks. All right? Let's do it. All right, folks. That's great. Hope you had a chance to meet someone you didn't know. That's always a good thing. I had someone ask me if I was going to tell any more bathtub stories. <laughs> and the answer is no. But I may have a few others. Well, let's, uh, let's look to the Lord and begin uh, in prayer tonight. Father, the, the days just uh, do seem to fly by. Uh, it, it is a rapid uh, world that we live in. And uh, when we were kids, everything seemed to go uh, so slowly. It, it, it seemed like Christmas when we were kids would come about every three years. We just could hardly wait. And uh, now it seems like it comes about every three to four months because it's, it's a fast life. And uh, in, in this uh, midweek that we find ourselves suddenly in, we thank you today for, uh, for your provision. We thank you for your care. We thank you um, for giving us what we need. Some of us have had good days today, and we have uh, had some encouraging things happen. Uh, others of us are on the other side of the equation. Uh, not, not the best day we've ever had. Uh, got some, some news that uh, has discouraged us and uh, kind of taken the wind out of our sails today. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over both of those kinds of days. Uh, some days, Lord, uh, we're pumped up. Some days we're just depleted. But we thank you, Lord, that, um, that you're always the same. Uh, you've never had a bad day. Um, your emotions are not all over the map. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not interested or not involved. It just means that you're God and you're steady. And nothing ever takes you by surprise the way that it does us. So that's why we come to you. Uh, we, um, Lord, we need some help on how to live our lives. We all do, no matter where we are in life. 
And we would ask that you would uh, speak to our hearts, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us clarification, that you would give us truth from your word. And may we be careful uh, to take the things that we hear and measure them to the word of God to make sure they fit. And what fits, we accept. What doesn't fit, we discard because your word is the authority. So teach us now and instruct us. We again pray for energy because it's the end of the day. Uh, give, it, give us a boost that, uh, we can, um, that we can be alert. We ask that you might do that for us, and we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> It would help me to know, and I already asked this, but I've already forgotten. How many of you were not here last week? Okay. Well, tough luck. <laughs> no. L let me try to uh, let me let me try to back up just for a minute or two and give you a running start at what we are discussing. Uh, our, kind of our umbrella topic is overcoming overload, and the, the reason we are looking at that topic is, just, is because just about everybody that I know, probably just about everybody that you know, uh, feels overloaded. We tend to be overwhelmed, we tend to be overworked, we tend to be overstressed, uh, we, we tend to be overdrawn emotionally, we tend to be overdrawn relationally, we tend to... Uh, we, we, we tend to be running on fumes in so many areas of our lives. Uh, the alarm clock goes off early. Uh, back at our house, we don't even have an alarm clock anymore. We got a starter's pistol. Boom. <laughs> and I mean that thing, and we're running. There is so much to do, so many responsibilities. Uh, so many uh, commitments, so many good things vying for our time. What happens is we tend to get overloaded. The, the danger is this. In the culture in which we live, there's never been a culture that is more pervasive than the one in which we live. And what I mean by that is we are susceptible to so many wrong messages that hit us uh, constantly and continually. We get wrong messages through the media. We get it through television. We get it through radio. We get it through uh, magazines. We get it through Oprah. We get it through uh, all kinds of... Uh, we get it... If you have kids, it, it comes in uh, through things like MTV. Uh, con concepts that... Um, that undermine everything you're attempting to teach. If you've ever been to a third world country, uh, you, you come back and you're so grateful that you live in America because you've seen the, the horrible conditions in which people live. You have seen the open sewers. You've seen the little kids playing in the open sewers. Uh, it breaks your heart. It's always so good to get back to America where we don't have open sewers, at least not in our streets. We just have open sewers running through our living rooms. Because you see, through television, so much of it. What is on television today, five years ago, would have been unthinkable. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And 
and they, con they continue to lower the bar. They continue to undermine the things that we're attempting to teach our children. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, the fathers of Israel are addressed, and uh, Moses says to them, this is the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord. Everything in this culture is designed to undermine the truth of God. It's designed to undermine the spiritual foundational principles. And when I say everything, I'm generalizing, but you, you get the drift, don't you? Uh, we are besieged with wrong messages. So it is difficult, not only for children, but it's difficult for us as adults to live our lives biblically because we're getting so much wrong information. It just pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds. I think that's one reason we're overloaded. Because we tend, and we don't even realize it, and I'm speaking of myself here, we tend to get overloaded because we tend to believe what the culture and what the world says to us. Last week we said there are three lies that we hear time and time again in our culture. Here's the first lie. Number one, you can have it all. No, you can't. Where would you put it <laughs> if you got it? I mean, you're already out of space. Remember you moved in that house and you thought, what are we going to do with all this space? And now you're renting a storage unit. You see, number one, you can't have it all. We know that, but sometimes we forget it. Uh, the second lie is you can do it all. Now, there's a reason we're so overloaded. We, we're, we're trying to do more than we were made to do. And these are all interwoven, you see. Um, you can do it all. See, if you do it all and you spend more time doing it, then you can have more. And see, the reason a lot of us were so busy trying to do it all because if I do it more and I have more, see, if I've got more, I get a bigger this and a bigger that, that's the place of happiness. Happiness doesn't come from more things. Happiness comes from quality of relationship with God, with my family, with friends. Uh, the third lie is you deserve it all. And quite frankly, you don't. And neither do I. Um, we are recipients of the grace and mercy of God. And, and God has given us his word. I said last week that God's word is like, a, uh, it's like an ATM that's available 24 hours a day with an unlimited, un unlimited credit line for people who are overdrawn emotionally and spiritually and relationally. But see, what's happened is because we live in this culture and we're going so fast and we have so much going on that a lot of us, we don't even realize we got an ATM, and those of us who do, we've lost our password. The Bible is God's pass. It, it, the Bible is, is, is the ATM. Uh, and, and so what we are doing in this study is that we are backing up and we are looking at uh, what we have forgotten about what God has said as to how we are to live our lives. Um, 
It, it really is an amazing culture in which we live. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that uh, if there is one word that describes our culture, it's the word more. We have more of everything, and none of it is going away. Whatever you think of, there's more. There, it's just not radio now. Remember, it just used to be AM. And then, it, then it's FM. And now it's satellite radio. That's more radio. There, there, there's more TV. There are more channels. There's more. Now, now you've got to get a new kind of TV, uh, an H-something. Uh, there, there's just, it's just more and uh, uh, more technology, more information, more emails. There is more intrusions into our lives than there's ever been before. And see, we call that progress, and we think it's a good thing. Some of it is, but if it's not controlled, it drains us and it saps us because it invades uh, our lives, and there is absolutely no quiet anymore. And there's no silence, and there's no rest, and there's no solitude. And no wonder we're, quote unquote, uh, stressed out. Um, it, it's, it's moving very rapidly. Uh, Richard Swinson uh, gives an illustration of what he calls exponential growth. Here's what he says. Take a piece of paper and fold it in half 40 times. How thick is it? It would go from here to the moon. I saw that. I saw that look. Swinson says, most people have great difficulty grasping this, and well, they should. It sounds unbelievable, but the math is correct. That's called exponential growth. Uh, he uses another illustration. He says, the Pacific Ocean spans 64 million square miles and on average is 14,000 feet deep. If all the continents of the world were placed inside it, there would still be room for another Asia. That's just the Pacific. Question, assume that the Pacific dried up and it was our job to fill it. If we began with a single drop of water and continued doubling the amount, how many doublings would be necessary to refill the entire Pacific Ocean? The answer is 80 because of exponential growth. And then he asked the question, how full is the ocean at the 70th doubling, 70 doubling? Less than one-tenth of one percent. But then exponential growth kicks in. If you've ever talked with a, uh, um, an investment advisor or someone, uh, and uh, financial advisor, and they'll show you that uh, I remember seeing an illustration, if you put like $2.46 away a day, uh, every day for 40 years and got 10% on your money, uh, I, I, 30 years, 35 years, you'd have a million bucks. Now, how is that the case? It's exponential. And they show you the line, you put that money away and it stays flat. It's just flat for two years, three years, five years, seven years, eight years, very boring. 10 years, 11 years, 12 years, flat as a pancake. And then about 19 years, all of a sudden that line, which is flat, about 19 years, that sucker just goes and takes off like the space shuttle. It's called 
It's called compound interest, you see. What happens to us in life is that uh, we are already saturated. There's, quite frankly, not any room for anything else. But things keep coming into our lives, and uh, we keep feeling that we have to take these things on. So we get overloaded. Um, I'd like you to turn with me to Daniel 4. Uh, in Daniel 4, there was a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, usually when you think about going to Daniel, you think about reading about Daniel. Or you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But to me, one of the most interesting uh, people in, in the book of Daniel is this King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who, uh, he had it all. Um, and, and quite frankly, as he looked around, uh, he had done a lot. And, and there was something that entered into his thinking where he thought that he deserved what he had. A year prior to the event that we're going to read, he had had a disturbing dream, and Daniel had interpreted the dream and had told him about what was going to happen to him if he did not mend his ways. If you look at Daniel 4, verse 27, Daniel is coming to the end of interpreting his dream, and he says to him, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. A year later now. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great? And it was great, by the way. It was the New York City of its day. He'd walk around humming to himself, Babylon, Babylon. Not New York, New York, but Babylon, Babylon, because it was, it was the king of all cities. It was the city of cities. It, it, uh, this guy had built hanging gardens that were literally one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, probably checking out his hanging gardens, which people from all over the world would come to see. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, I love that, don't you? A voice came from heaven saying, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, the Lord told me. The Lord told this guy. This, this is not Christian television here, folks. This is the real thing. When he said the Lord told him, the Lord told him. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Uh, kings have sovereignty. And we looked at last week that sovereignty involves three things. It involves ownership. It involves authority. And it involves control. And he had all those things. This guy's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you, 
until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. For seven years, you could see him. You'd be on the freeway, and you'd see him out there. Uh, it's the king. Verse 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. He hadn't done that before. At the end of the seven years, that's what, he did. that's what he did. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, do you see how his, you see, you see a shift that's taken place here? Suddenly, he's not so concerned about himself. See, he's, he's the sovereign. No, he isn't. He's the sovereign. He's got a shift in his thinking. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? Our, our point last week was this. If you are overloaded, if you are overwhelmed, uh, if you are saturated, if there's no more room, if you're exhausted, if you're stressed out, the first thing you need in your life is you need a sovereign. A sovereign. Uh, a sovereign is a king. And last week, we talked about the fact that he is sovereign, and he is sovereign over everything in our lives. Everything. Now, tonight, there's a second principle. Um, is it not true that as we go through life, going back to the first principle, that we tend to forget that God is sovereign? We tend to forget about the power of God. We tend to forget about the wisdom of God. We tend to forget about the character of God as we go through life and things happen and we have setbacks and we have disappointing things that happen. Um, that's just human nature. But, but you see, as Chuck has been doing this masterful job going through Job, even in the beginning of Job, Job acknowledged that God was sovereign. When everything was taken away from him, and it came in, in rapid fire, this report, this report, news flash, news flash, headline news, CNN, Fox News, it's coming in faster than he can digest it. And in a matter of minutes, he's lost everything, tears his clothes. He says, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is not what he said because he was not a modern-day evangelical who was weak on the character of God. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But, but you say, but, but God gave permi permission to Satan to go, to go disruptive. That's right. 
But see, Job ultimately knew that God was sovereign even over Satan. As we said last week, Satan's on a short leash. He just, he, 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 he is under the control of the Father. We don't always understand that, but it's the fact of the matter. You've got to have a sovereign. If, if you're going to be able to withstand the difficulties of life, Jesus said, um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you don't understand that he's absolutely sovereign, his yoke isn't easy and his burden isn't light because, see, you've got to carry it. Now, here's our point tonight. Not only do you need a sovereign, but you need a Sabbath. A Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of Scripture. But uh, it, is, it is a concept that is there, and it is a concept that has tremendous relevancy to those of us in this room. Um, the pace of life is growing exponentially, isn't it? Um, the progress of life is growing exponentially, and here's what happens. Because the pace of life is moving so fast, and there's so much progress, the priorities, the biblical priorities of life get lost in, in the rush just simply to keep up and to keep your head above water. Um, we, we have to go back and rediscover the biblical priorities that God has given us, not what the world says, but the biblical priorities that he has given us where he tells us how to live. Now, how do we discover those priorities? We've got to go back to creation. So I want to go back to Genesis. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis. Now, it's interesting, as we talk about a Sabbath, we read about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had what I call an enforced Sabbath that occurred in his life because he refused to act on some information that had been clearly given to him. And instead of honoring God as God, he, he uh, attempted to rob God of his glory. Now, God was merciful in how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar because um, years and years later in the New Testament, there was another king in the book of Acts, and people started attributing to him greatness, and he took the greatness and accepted it, and he immediately began to be eaten up by worms and died a painful death. Uh, you never rob God of his glory. It belongs to him solely. He is our creator. Now, we're going back to creation because in creation, we find, um, we find the priorities. Uh, there are some creation uh, ordinances. There are some creation truths that are there at the very beginning that are for all people in all periods of time in all cultures. Um, these uh, don't change. These are not to be altered. Uh, God has laid these out as foundational principles uh, for life. The first one, Actually, this isn't the first one on my list. 
This is kind of the presupposition. Before I list to you the creation ordinances, the first one is there's a creator. And notice, notice, you see, that our world says there isn't a creator. Um, where's this clock? I've got to watch this clock. Okay. And we're Pacific time here, right? Is that, <laughs> is that right? I, I, I've been reading this book by um, Stephen Charnock called The Existence and Attributes of God. He's one of those Puritan guys. In our culture, Puritans get a bad rap. They were, for the most part, they were excesses among some. Salem witch trials and that. But as a group, that was an aberration. Some of the godliest people ever to walk the face of the earth. J.I. Packer has said of the Puritan preachers that uh, they were the giant redwoods in God's forest. They knew God. Charnock has this uh, book called The Existence and Attributes of God, and it's literally about that thick. And um, uh, I was reading his section um, where he takes the verse, the fool has said that there is no God. And I think he's got about 190 pages on that line. And one of the things, and he's writing in about 1665, 1666, and one of the things he talks about is the fact that in their culture, he, uh, he is amazed at how many atheists there are. Now, you have to understand, to him, there were a lot. To us, there'd be a sprinkling, you see. And one of the things he talked about is that the foolishness of atheism, he says, wherever we go in the world, and they're exploring, and they're sending out explorers, and they're going all over the globe, whenever they would find a new group of people anywhere on the face of the earth, what every group would all have in common is that they would believe there was a God. Now, in their paganism, they would reason from one God to many gods. Every culture. You, and Charnock's point was, you can't find a culture that doesn't believe in God. Wherever we go on the face, wherever you go on the sea, you're going to find those people believe in God. They go from one God to many God. The fool goes from one God to no God. Does that make sense to you? You see what he's saying? We, he would not believe our culture. Uh, with, with the rise of Darwinism, and you know, it's fascinating. There's always more to that than just is what on the surface. Uh, there were issues in Darwin's life. There were issues with his father. Um, one of the interesting things about Darwin is that after he published his book and took that stand that there wasn't a God who created a life, you know what happened to Darwin? He couldn't listen to music anymore. He lost his love for music. Couldn't stand to hear it. You know what else happened to him? He lost his taste for food. That man began to fall apart from the inside out. Because you see, he denied, the, there is a creator. Our culture says there isn't. As we go to Genesis, I want to say this to you. I believe there's a creator. I believe he created in six literal days. That's what I, because it says it. If there's a problem in any way, shape, or form with what Genesis 1 says, in any way, shape, or form, then how in the world can you trust Genesis 2? If there's a problem in Genesis 1, how can you trust Genesis 12 or 15 or 17 where God made a covenant with Abraham? 
If there's a problem in any way, shape, or form with Genesis 1 and the creation account, then how in the world can you trust John 3.16? Because it's flawed from the very beginning. There are some ordinances from creation when God created, and let me lay them out for you. The first one is this, and, and these are for all people for all ages. Number one is the ordinance of marriage and having children. In Genesis 1.28, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and ru rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is fascinating stuff because our culture denies what's in here. Our culture denies that man has been given authority and dominion over the animal creation. We have people who in all seriousness believe it's morally wrong to do testing on a rat in order to save the life of a baby. That's how far gone we are because they don't believe that we've been given dominion. But we've been made in the image of God. Animals have not. Now, that's fundamental to us. It used to be fundamental to the culture, but they've lost it. Maybe they've lost it, but it's still true. In Genesis 2, um, verses 23 and 24, this is the account where Adam is by himself, God brings uh, all the animals to him to name the animals. Naming is a ruling function. Naming denotes that you have authority. You named your children because you have authority over your children. The guy down the street didn't name your kids. He doesn't have authority over your kids. Adam's alone. He saw the whole creation. He began to pick up that there was two of everything. I mean, he, he, was, he never read Genesis. He's just showing up. Here comes the creation. This guy's alone. And I don't, if I were him, I'd be looking. I mean, personally, wouldn't you? So he doesn't know what he's going to see, and the giraffe comes in. He thinks there's no way. That, that's, I mean, but as these different animals came, now he didn't know. I'm sure if I had been Adam, I'd be looking for someone because he began to realize there was two. There's uh, buck and there's doe. There's rooster and there's... He began to pick this up. And what happens is, he's alone. There's no one who corresponds to him. And as he's asleep, God takes a rib, fashions into a woman. And here's what happens. He brought her to the man. The man wakes up, verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones. This is no giraffe. This corresponds to me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, this, you, you wouldn't get this just for reading. This guy was excited. I mean, he was real excited. You know what? He was alone. He'd seen the whole creation, falls asleep, wakes up, and there's Eve standing there, naked. I think this very well could be the, the real beginning of the charismatic movement. <laughs> I think this guy started saying words he'd never said before. <laughs> I think he began to laugh. He was excited because there was a woman who corresponded to him. This was marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is instituted by God. And once again, in our culture, 
we're saying that marriage now is not exclusive to a male and female. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Period. Let me give you a second creation ordinance. The ordinance of work. Of work. In Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. These creation ordinances, it's, it's important to understand, these ordinances were in place before sin came into the world. There was work before sin came into the world. The man had a task to do. Uh, he was to subdue the earth. He was to harness its resources. Here's a third ordinance. was the ordinance of the Sabbath. In, in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Let me make some observations about the Sabbath. And is it not interesting? Is it not interesting that um, the Sabbath has become so foreign to our culture. It's become so foreign to America. Um, I told this story last year when I taught on Psalm 23, but when, uh, oh, probably 10 years ago, we were driving out to California and where I grew up, and uh, we went through Bakersfield, a little town where I grew up, and I was showing my kids, and Mary, you know, that's where I went to school, and you know, my dad was a general contractor, and he would build houses, and we'd move into houses, and I'd show them. We lived there three weeks, and he sold it. We moved next door and never changed school. That's true. I thought it was great. I mean, my mom went nuts, but it's just what we did. And uh, we're pulling up, and all these houses are on the same subdivision. It's all pretty small. I used to think it was big, but, you know, the older you get, you go back, and it's small. And, uh, and I showed them the bedroom where... You know, when I was seven, I asked my mom and dad. I went in and told them I wanted to be a Christian. And in that bedroom, they led me to Christ. And, uh, and then we're going down Mount Vernon Boulevard. And we're getting, we got to get going and get out of town. As we're going down Mount Vernon, there's what used to be Thrifty Mart. There used to be a chain of grocery stores in California called Thrifty Mart. And they had these windmills, these big windmills. There used to be something called Vandy Camp's Bakery. And, and so I saw this Thrifty Mart at some other store now. And as we're going by, I said, now, you see that, see that grocery store over there? That was the first store in Bakersfield that was open on Sunday. And I think John, I don't know, he was like 9 or 10. He said, he said, Dad? He said, what? He said, what would you say? I said, that was the first store in Bakersfield, grocery store open on Sunday. He said, the, the grocery stores weren't open when you were a kid? I said, no, not on Sunday. He, he says, you're kidding. I go, no. He said, well, well, there had to be a store. So I said, John, there wasn't a grocery store in the whole town open on Sunday. He said, well, would you, what if you ran out of food on Saturday? I said, you know, John, it was really tough back then. My mom had to think through Saturday night everything we'd need to make it to Monday morning. And I used to walk five miles in the snow. I kind of got crazy there. But, but, then, but then he said, he, he, then he asked the big-time question. He said, Dad, why? Why were the stores closed on Sunday? He's never seen a grocery store closed on Sunday in his life. I told him all the stores in Bakersfield, all the stores in America were closed on Sunday. 
I said, John, how long did it take God to create the world? He said, billions and billions of years. So I decked him. No. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, six days. I said, I said what did God do on the seventh day, John? He said, he rested. I said, John, in America, everybody used to rest on the seventh day. It used to be a Sabbath. You could go out to eat after church on Sunday. That was about it. Everything else was closed up. That was amazing to him. The motto of our culture is 24 slash 7. I still remember the first 7-Eleven that I ever saw, right down by our high school. Now, see, originally they were open from 7. To 11. You're following this, aren't you? But then somebody, and that was amazing. They'd open at 7 in the morning. You could get milk at 11 at night. But then someone got the idea, let's go 24 hours. And there's no stoppings now. Make some observations about the Sabbath and why we need it. Um, just some basic principles. Number one, the Sabbath was rooted in the divine example. Adam was to follow his father's example. He worked six, rested on the seventh. Second observation. The Sabbath was confirmed after the fall, after sin entered into the world in the Ten Commandments. It's in God's moral law. Um, Jesus explained. Now, some people, when we get in the New Testament, they think, oh, no, the Sabbath, you know, that's a terrible... No, the Sabbath wasn't bad. What was bad is what the Pharisees had done with the Sabbath. They had completely convoluted the Sabbath and made up these laws that had nothing to do with the Scriptures whatsoever. In Mark 2, verse 27 and 28, Jesus explained the Sabbath rather than rejecting it. Uh, turn over there real quick with me, if you would. Uh, say, well, Steve, where, uh, and folks, you know what? I, I don't, I don't want to lose you here because we've got to lay the groundwork for why the Sabbath is important. Um, all right? Mark 2. Notice, if you would, Verse 23, let's pick it up. And it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, who said it wasn't lawful? Did the Bible say? No, their tradition. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? And then he goes on and talks about when David ate the consecrated bread. Verse 27, he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus didn't throw it away. He rejected their concept. They would get upset at Jesus. Jesus would, would purposefully heal somebody on the Sabbath, and they'd get upset. That's how convoluted they were. James Stifler has written these words. There is a Sabbath, and it is divinely instituted in Mark chapter 2. But there is not a line nor a word in the New Testament about how it is to be observed. That's an interesting concept. We'll come back to that. Another point on the Sabbath, and I get this from John Murray. Uh, passed away now, but a tremendous uh, teacher of the scriptures up at Westminster Seminary. Uh, John Murray said, The Sabbath was a resting from a particular kind of work rather than a complete secession from all work, as the Pharisees taught. Man is to rest from normal work to have time for worship. 
did Jesus cease from all activity on the Sabbath? No. See, see, the thing is, the concept of a Sabbath is what you normally do the other days, you don't do. It's designed, that's a period of time where you step out and you rest. Doesn't mean you can't do, do other things. Uh, you can do other things. But one of the foundational principles of Sabbath is that you take time out of your normal routine to worship and to thank God for his provision and to trust him for his provision. The Sabbath and sovereignty are really closely linked because if your God is not sovereign and doesn't control all things and doesn't own all things, then how in the world can you rest when you take a day off? See, the Sabbath is an issue of trust. The Sabbath is an issue that while I rest, God will work for me. That's what's behind the concept um, of a Sabbath. Um, we, as a culture, we, we have gotten so far away. We wonder why we're so worn out. We wonder why we're so stressed. We wonder um, uh, why we're, we're depressed. We wonder why we're so depleted. We wonder why... Um, our relationships don't have more depth to them. We're going in so many different directions. Let me ask you this. As you look at your schedule, um, how restful was last Sunday for you? Oh, I know you're really on top of it biblically. You know the Sabbath originally was Saturday. So you rested on Saturday, right? Is it not true that you can go back, look at your daytime, you can go back for weeks and weeks and weeks and really not find a day in there where you have actually rested, taken a break, and just read that book or Go out in the backyard and just sit and maybe pray and turn off the cell phone. Well, I couldn't do that. Why not? Well, I, I need to be available. No, you don't. Hey, how did we live before we got cell phones? Very well, I think. Don't you? I was reading uh, in Fortune magazine, uh, Bob Nardelli is the new CEO of Home Depot. Uh, he was in line to be the successor of Jack Welch at GE, but didn't get it, and immediately Home Depot came after him. He is in the office no later than 6.15 a.m., never leaves before 9 p.m., never. Considers Saturday and Sundays work days. Um, how would you like to work with him or for him? I wouldn't. Dick Vermeil um, coaches now the Rams, but he took some time off. Uh, I remember Dick Vermeil when he coached Hillsdale High School in San Mateo, California, just down from my house. Uh, incredibly successful coach, incredibly driven. At every level, he was driven. Uh, would go from... Uh, eight in the morning, actually earlier than that, till one, then two, 
than three. Working on his coaching staff was so exhausting that one of his assistant coaches in Philadelphia, his family actually found him asleep in the car in the driveway twice because the guy was so exhausted he couldn't get into the house. True story. Vermeil totally burned out after years and years and years. He just lost it, caved in totally, just broke down. First time in his life he's not coaching football in the fall. He's driving with his wife somewhere in Pennsylvania, and they pull out of the house and they're driving, all of a sudden he slams on the brakes and he pulls over, and he said to her, he says, look at that, look at that. And she said, what are you doing? He said, look at those colors in those trees. And he had never seen those before since the time they had moved to Philadelphia because he'd always been inside. You see, there was never any time to take a break. There was any, never any time to, to, to look at the trees, to look at the colors. Um, I think you were given a handout when you walked in. And I'd like you to take that because what this is is a calendar. Now, um, the side that says the Feast and Sacred Times of Ancient Israel, we didn't get acknowledgement on here, but that comes from the Nelson Study Bible. On the other side, that comes from the New Bible Commentary. Um, what this is, the, the reason I've got this down here for you is that the, here is, uh, where, where is mine? This is the calendar I worked out of, right here. This is my calendar for 2002. I got all my stuff in here. And uh, where I'm going, what I, you know, I can see where I've been. This is my calendar, uh, just like you've got a calendar. God had a calendar for them. And it's interesting to me to observe the calendar that God had for Israel. Uh, last week I said one of the reasons I got involved in doing this study was that last year I found myself absolutely worn out. I had some time off in the summer, got about three weeks into my fall schedule, and I'll tell you what, I was shot. I was, uh, I was worn out, I was depleted, I didn't have much left, and, and I had a full schedule ahead of me, and I thought, you know what, I'm in trouble. I mean, I'm not 27 years old anymore, I can't live like this. And, and I began to go back and ask myself, how did I get in this position? And what became clear to me is that what happened to me was that my priorities got distorted. And then I had to go back to the scripture, and I had to ask myself, is this how I'm supposed to live? Is there not a way that God wants me to live that would be an improvement on this? So I started going back and looking at the scriptures, and one of the things I realized was that um, I'd completely forgotten the concept of a Sabbath, the, the concept uh, of rest. And, and it was killing me. It was catching up to me. You can only do that so long. When, when you look, and you know in the Old Testament, they had, they had these feasts, you know, like you read Leviticus. If you ever get a calendar, you're going to read through the Bible. You're doing great in Genesis, Exodus. You get to Leviticus, you start to do a slow death in Leviticus. You're sitting there at 5 in the morning, you go, I mean, my gosh, what is this stuff? Turtle doves and all that, I mean, you know. Well, a lot of that had to do with the sacrificial system, and a lot of that had to do with the feast and with the gatherings. Uh, God had a calendar for Israel. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 says of Israel that these things were written for our example. Now, what I want to do is, 
and, and please understand, as we look at their calendar, I'm not saying we take this and we start putting this into our lives. That we start saying, all right, they did it. That, that's not the point. That's legalism. What I want us to see is that God, for his people, built in periods of rest and refreshment. I think, in, in my own life, I began to realize if God built that in for them, why wouldn't I need something like that? But I had forgotten this principle. If you look at the one that says the feast and sacred times of ancient Israel, that's on one of those sides. First event is the Sabbath. Every seventh day was a solemn rest from all work. Then you had the new moon. The first day of each month was a day of rest. Now see, there's another day. Uh, then you had Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits. Now, if you flip to the other side, you'll see the months of the year and how they correspond to our calendar, and you will see that Passover and um, unleavened bread and first fruits were in the first month of their year. Um, this is when, in later times, people, tribes from all over Israel, they would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, the, for these feasts, for these days which involved worship, which involved uh, celebration, which involved eating, which involved uh, seeing friends and family. I, I want you to understand, this. you know, our term holiday comes from the term holy day. These were times that God built into their schedule. So you've got it in the first month of the year, which for us would be March, April. That's when their year kicked off. Okay? Then you go 50 days later, and you've got Pentecost. Um, 50 days later, because you would have seven weeks, which contained seven Sabbaths, which would be 49 days, and on the next day was Pente, 50, Greek concept, Pentecost. Um, there was another celebration. There was another pilgrimage where, once again, they would worship, they would see friends, they would get together. Um, it was not just worship, but there was family celebration. It was a time to renew uh, friendships. It was time to have fun. A lot of people think God is a killjoy. He's not. So already, look, and, and this would have been May and June. So we're into the fifth or sixth month of the year, and they've already been, they've all gotten together twice. All right? Then go down to the, uh, to the trumpets, to the Day of Atonement, and to tabernacles. That comes in September, October. Once again, from all over Israel, they make their way to Jerusalem. They've got worship. They have days of rest. They have days of feasting and of celebration. Um, days where their normal routine were interrupted. Um, then later on, you've got, um, um, you've got what we know as Hanukkah. You've got, uh, you can see you've got Purim that takes place in the 12th month. The, the, the point I want to make is this, and then flip on the other side, if you would, back to that calendar. Not only in Israel was there a Sabbath day, but in Israel there was a Sabbath year. Every seven years, they were not to work the land. 
in, in Israel today, there are Orthodox kibbutzes, communes, that, uh, where they share the land and they work the land. Some of these kibbutzes, these Orthodox kibbutzes, practice the sabbatical year. They do not uh, plant the seventh year. You know what's interesting? The sixth year, their yield is two and a half times greater than any other yield, which gives them enough to get them through to the eighth year when they plant and then they get their harvest in. Isn't that amazing? Um, from the time this was instituted, uh, historically, there was 490 years that went by. Israel never observed the Sabbath year. They never did it. 490 years, that would give you how many Sabbath years? Any of you here good at math? <laughs> 70 years. Then they were taken into captivity. You know how long they were in captivity? 70 years. You can pay me now, or you can pay me later. God got his 70 sabbatical years, you see. Uh, that was an enforced Sabbath. Then, in the 50th year, you had the, the year of Jubilee. The 50th year, which followed seven Sabbath years, proclaimed liberty to those who were servants because of debt and returned lands to their former owners. My, my point in showing you this, folks, is just simply this. That as I look at the calendar that God laid out for them, I think that can be a model that can be adapted as I look at my life and as I look at my schedule and I look at my family, where there ought to be times that we plan where we get away. There ought to be time. And, and, and I want to just tell you up front, I have been the world's worst at this. For me, I had a big, um, I, I thought I had a pretty big victory Monday night because I said to Mary after dinner, I said, you want to go see a movie? Now, you don't know what I'm talking about. But for me, that's like revival. <laughs> that's like spiritual awakening. Because I don't ever think of doing that because I'm thinking about something else. I'm not a real good one to just go watch a movie. Uh, I, 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 that's not what I do. But you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to build in little breaks in my life. It's very elementary. But when you haven't done it, you've got to start taking baby steps. Um, we, uh, we've developed some tradition. In my family, on my mom's side of the family, when I was a little kid, we'd have family reunions and three and four hundred people would show up. And I'm not exaggerating. Uncle Charlie would dig a pit, three feet wide, six feet long, and for four or five days, he was cooking meat in there. That's why people showed up at our reunions who weren't even in our family. They just wanted to eat. <laughs> and then they'd always have, you know what, they'd always have a worship service somewhere during that four or five day time. We did that for years. We, we, we're starting a thing in our family where July 4th, because we're spread out, we're starting to all show up at my mom and dad's place. And it's just sort of developed. And, it's, and now we've already got rooms reserved for next year, and it's just starting to be something that we do. You see? Now, now for some of you, you're thinking, this is not that big of a deal, because you do it. But others, you see, who've gotten sucked in and so driven and so focused, we forget to do this. 
But you see, it's what, it's what breaks up the monotony of life. I'll tell you what else it does. These Sabbaths, these Sabbaths that happen in our lives, I'll tell you what they do. They keep us from idolatry, believe it or not. Uh, in our culture, we have the idolatry of uh, money. We have the idolatry of success. We have the idolatry of, uh, of status. And uh, we have the idolatry of power. If you have an elevation in power, if you have an elevation in wealth, if you have an elevation in success, then you have status. When we take a Sabbath and we're not working on accumulating money, that is a step to um, putting a hedge between you and letting money become idolatrous in your life. You struggle with success? You need to take a day off and not worry about your success. You're trying to climb the corporate ladder? You need to just take a day and not worry about it. And don't talk to anybody at work. You're not available. There's nothing. Don't you have a family? And some of you young guys, those kids need you. Your kids don't need more things. They need you. Those things are going to rust and wear out. You can, that, that little kid's only going to be four one time. He's only going to be ten once. And we all know this, but you see, the, this urgency gets into our lives. And, and, and we, quite frankly, we get addicted to this stuff. And it's withering our homes, and it's withering our relationships. And we're running on fumes. We're, I, I think there are consequences that we have not even considered because we have bought into this pace and this success and this, uh, this urgency. And, and there's, there's no downtime. There's no quiet time. There, there's no time to decompress. Um, I, I got to read this. Last week, someone told me they were upset because they said, now this thing was supposed to go to 8.30. And I said, well, I can't last that long because I personally can't hear me that long. I'm not going to go that long here. I'm coming to the end of the trail. But um, C.H. Spurgeon wrote this a number of years ago. Um, that's not it. I mean, he wrote that, but that's not it. Here it is. Spurgeon said, The bow cannot always be bent without fear of breaking. Repose is as needed to the mind as sleep to the body. Our Sabbaths for ministers are our days of toil, and if we do not rest upon some other day, we shall break down. For all of us, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. Look at the mower in the summer's day, with so much to cut down before the sun sets. He pauses in his labor. Is he a sluggard? He looks for a stone and begins to draw an up and down his scythe, the rink-a-tink, rink-a-tink, rink He's sharpening his blade. Is that idle music? Is he wasting precious moments? How much he might have moaned while he was ringing out those notes on his blade. But he is sharpening his tool, and he will do far more when once again he gives his strength to those long sweeps which lay the grass prostrate 
and rose before him. Even thus, a little pause prepares the mind for greater service in a good cause. Fishermen must mend their nets, and we must every now and then repair our mental states and set our machinery in order for future service. It is wisdom to take occasional furloughs. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing what? Less. We know these things. We just get sucked in. And quite frankly, it's, it's killing us. William Bloxy has said this, the Sabbath is God's special present to the working man, and one of its chief objects is to prolong his life. The saving bank of human existence is a weekly Sabbath. Does it have to be Saturday? Does it have to be Sunday? I don't think so. I think God has given us great latitude uh, you don't have definitive issues in the New Testament. It's this, it's this, it's this. But you have the concept. You can't run a car 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can't do it. It's going to break down. You can't run a chainsaw seven days a week. 20, we, we, we can't. We, in, in the glove compartment of your car in the parking lot, you open that up and there's an owner's manual and there is a maintenance schedule in that manual. You know what that is? That is a Sabbath guide. That's, that's no more and no less. Because there are times when that car needs to rest and there are times when that car needs to be maintained. You know one of the interesting things to me about visiting Israel? Is that if you're in Jerusalem, then Yehuda Street, that's a happening place. Outdoor cafe, it's fun to be there. It's just, it's just marvelous. But you don't ever want to go there when they're getting ready for the Sabbath. Because you know what happens in that country? The whole nation that afternoon begins to shut down. And I mean, it shuts down. And there's nowhere to go. And there's nothing to do. So you know what they do? They get together and they have services. And even the ones that aren't Orthodox, they get together with family and they have a meal and they talk. And grandpa and grandma are there and the kids. And they're, and they're watching TV and they're just, they're just talking. And a lot of them pray and as a family and thank God. David Ford writes, it is a liberation to believe that rest and leisure are just as much an imperative as work. It also affects the whole shape of our life. I remember a rabbi in a television interview being asked, how have the Jews managed to preserve the Sabbath over thousands of years? His reply was, it is not the Jews who have preserved the Sabbath. The Sabbath has preserved the Jews. There's great wisdom there. Are we to go back and live under the Old Testament? Obviously not. But you see, there are creation ordinances. God is still for marriage, and God is still for having children and raising up a godly heritage, isn't he? God is still for work. He gives us work. It's 
one of the reasons we're on the earth. And we're to work hard. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ, Colossians said. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. You know what that means? That means no matter what you do, you do it to the glory of God. Are you a welder? Then you be the best welder in Frisco, and you make those welds to the glory of God. Are you a CPA? You make those returns to the glory of God. Best returns, tight as a whistle, none of this Enron stuff. You do your returns to the glory of God. Are you a Christian attorney? That's possible. <laughs> and thank God there are some of you out there. That's an honorable profession that we make fun of. Why? Because so many are not doing their work to the glory of God, but to wealth and to all kinds of things. Last thing they're concerned about is the law. But you get a man who practices the law to the glory of God, that's wonderful. If you're an airline mechanic, please, <laughs> I implore you, do your work to the glory of God. God is for marriage, God is for children, God is for work, and God is for rest. And we desperately need it. The question is, will we trust him to work for us when we're resting? I took piano for a year. That was it. And, and I didn't do real well. But I, I knew it was coming to an end, and there was this recital, and I had to learn this piece. And... I, I, I would almost get it. I mean, every time I would almost get it. But in three different places, there were these little deals that one was kind of squiggly, and then there was another one that kind of looked like a, a hat, kind of. And, and I never saw them. I mean, I knew they were there, but I would forget they were there. And what would happen is I'd do fine up until that, and, and then I'd get in trouble. Because you see, what those were, those were called rest notes. And the composer had put them in because at those points, you were supposed to not play but, but rest. The, the way that God has ordained it is that about every six measures, you're going to get a rest note. You can do what I did. You can keep playing. And uh, eventually somebody's going to get upset with you. Might be you, might be your wife, might be your kids. And they'll point out to you, there's a rest note there. And then there was one day when I played the piece, and for some reason, I saw the rest notes, and I rested. And when I got done, my piano teacher applauded. The only time <laughs> she ever applauded. You see, folks, the rest note 
in the music and rhythm of our lives is the Sabbath. And somewhere we've got to find it. It was John Ruskin who said, not without design does God write the music of our lives. Be it ours to learn the time and not be discouraged at the rest. They are not to be slurred over, not to be omitted, not to destroy the melody, not to change the keynote. If we look up, God himself will beat the time for us with the eye on him. We shall strike the next note full and clear because we rested. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we don't talk about this a whole lot. And, and quite frankly, it has become a, a foreign concept to us. We're not here talking about being inactive um, or being passive or being a sluggard. We're talking about people that, uh, that work and work hard and work to your glory. But you have also ordained that we are not to become addicted. Uh, you have ordained that 24-7 is not to be the motto of our lives. Uh, you are the one who uh, provides for us. You are the one who gives to us. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. And Lord, in a sense, every time we go to bed at night, it's a Sabbath. And we're trusting you with our lives as we go to sleep. We're trusting you to protect us. You've said you'll give to us in our sleep. And it's amazing. Sometimes we think we can't go to bed. We have so much to do, yet we wake up and we're refreshed and we're ready for the next now. Lord, this stuff is uh, hard to do because, because, Lord, on this one, in this culture, if we start implementing this, we're going to go upstream. Everybody else is going downstream. But Father, we really do want to have lives that honor you. We want to have marriages that honor you. And uh, that takes time. We want to have good relationships with our kids and grandkids. But once again, that takes time. Would you give us the wisdom, Lord, um, to get out our calendars and, and to call on you that you might help us. That we might go against the grain of our culture and against the grain of our personalities and temperaments and that we might build in rest. We don't have to go to places. We don't have to go anywhere exotic. We don't have to leave town. We just need to slow down and rest and maybe get together as a family and have some fun and and pray for each other. Lord, would you help us sort it out and would your spirit teach us? We ask that you'd give us teachable hearts. We don't want to live like everybody else. We don't want to have marriages on the brink. We want to build up some reserves, Lord, in our homes. Would you help us in this area, we pray. We can't do it without you. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer.
Thanks, folks. Lord bless you.